I'm always looking for screen-free options to entertain my kids, especially my oldest when we have long car rides or things like that. And something that I really love using with him are podcasts. And there's a really cute new podcast called Mysteries About True Histories, which uh, the acronym is MATH, M-A-T-H. And it's from the creators of the hit podcast, Who Smarted? And Netflix Brainchild. And it's all about the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories. And it follows these two characters, Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers. And they're on adventures through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history. And it's really funny, which makes learning kind of cool. And it's perfect for ages six and up. So new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter your kids won't even realize how much they're actually learning and my oldest is about six and a half and he loves stuff like this so it's a great new podcast to introduce to your kids the episodes are really short like 15 to 20 minutes so tune in to mysteries about true histories with your older kids you can follow and listen on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts Welcome back to the No One Told Us podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, and today I'm so, so excited to be talking with Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum, who is a neuroscientist, doula, infant and family sleep specialist, author, and parent, whose mission is to teach the science and support the art of nurturing infants. And I just want to apologize to everyone for my voice today. I am recovering from COVID, but I did not want to cancel this interview because this topic is just everything. It's so important. Like if we don't talk about the importance of nurture during infancy in those first three years, like nothing else matters. So it's just, it's so, so important. And I'm so happy to have you here and excited to talk about the book. Here it is right here, The Nurture Revolution. Dr. Greer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. As soon as I saw you had a podcast, I was like, I need to be on your podcast. Yes. Your work too. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we've done some like Instagram live conversations before and people always really love hearing from you and I hope that you know many people out there have already read your book or if not that they will add it to their list. Let's just talk a little bit first about the book. It's called The Nurture Revolution and you can also I would love for you to go a little bit more into your background if that makes sense, but Yeah. It's called The Nurture Revolution, and it's all about, obviously, nurture and and how important that is. But my question for you is, why is nurturing infants revolutionary? Why should that be such a revolutionary act? Shouldn't that be like our baseline? So I'd love for you to speak to that before we kind of dive into the content. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's amazing that nurture is revolutionary because it's the way that all mammals on the planet parent their babies and we are included in uh you know in the mammals on earth you know the way that our intuition guides us to take care of our babies and so actually you know reintroducing it back into society is what's the revolutionary part yeah it's taking this really innate old way of parenting and taking care of each other and bringing it back into society because you know the past couple hundred years there's been so many forces that have been sort of banishing nurture shaming it um making us feel bad about you know that those that intuition that instinct we have to to nurture our babies and so there's so much you know cognitive information I'll say 
that's sort of been infiltrated into our society that bashes up against that emotional and you know that that emotional instinctual kind of feeling we have and this is really a revolution both in the science which is pretty much brand new you know in the science world hot off the presses is like 20 30 years the past 20 30 years of science has really shown us um, how important nurture is for our biology our well-being our mental health but it's also revolutionary because it's connecting us back to the, that emotional feeling we have to take care of babies and to really you know banish all of those myths and and those voices that are kind of telling us not to yeah, it's so true. I mean, something that I see in my work all the time is like, why do these moms, parents, why do we need this like permission almost to nurture and to respond? It's like, you know, I hear it time and time again, parents are like, oh, thank you so much for like, you know, just showing me that it's okay to to rock my baby to sleep or whatever it is. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. geez, like, we've gone so far off course that people feel like yeah. this is something that they're doing wrong. Did your work as a neuroscientist or as a mom more inform this passion of yours and and this like mm. mission or was it both yeah it's a combination of my experience as a baby i was extremely high needs as a baby oh, okay. mm-hmm. and i was nurtured uh, my mom was re- really revolutionary she was supported by la leche league that was kind of like the place that helped her Um, I always want to mention them because I'm like, none of this would have happened without that influence, right? So me and my brother were both really high needs, really, you know, there must have been a lot of things going on with us. Like we would sleep very short short amounts of time across 24 hours, you know, really need to be attached um, physically to my mom. And, And she did show up for that. And she's really passionate about it. She was revolutionary at the time. No one around her was doing that. And that always stayed with me. My mom always talks about it. And I saw how she was different. And I saw, you know, the impact firsthand. That actually led me into my neuroscience career, into that interest quite a bit. Oh, wow. Because that that idea, my, my mom planted that seed in my mind as well, right? That the early life experience really does matter. Um, for mental health and for shaping the brain. And that was my focus in my neuroscience studies and my work. But the nurture science, let's say, you know, I call it like the nurture science, that really came out really strongly in my neuroscience career. Really started in the 90s with like Michael Meany at McGill. I was so attuned to it that I would just be paying attention to all the papers that came out over sort of my 20 year um, career in neuroscience. And it just, the, the evidence just built to this, you know, staggering amount that it was just overwhelming. And, you know, there was no contradictory evidence that, you know, nurture is so important in building the brain and mental health and physical health that goes along with it. Um, so it was those those two combinations. And so I was really like sure about the science and the approach. And then, you know, my experience after that was a, as a doula and a mother, nothing changed. It just all got confirmed and heightened and kind of, you know, confirmed in my body as well, right? As like my own 
experience. So many people were like, when you have a baby, you're going to be, you're going to say it different or you're, it's going to be different. And I was like, no, it wasn't, it really wasn't. It was, it made my parenting easier, which I also hear from other parents. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just know what to do all the time. You I know knew what to expect too. You knew to just prepare for them needing and wanting that closeness, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you say that there is this like overwhelming evidence. There's now a couple of decades of research about this and science about how important nurture is and how important attuned care is for babies. Why is it taking so long for society and our culture to catch up with that? Like there's still so much yeah. out there that seems to contradict that. So I would love to hear what you think are like the strongest pieces of evidence for nurture, mm-hmm. in favor of nurture. And then I'd also love to hear why you think we're so slow to kind of accept that science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I was blown away. You know, I had this point in my life where I was like ending my time in science. A lot of my friends were having babies. And I was starting to communicate the the science to them. And I was just in, I was like, oh my gosh, no one knows this. No one knows this stuff. And I think one part is there hasn't been a big voice for it, right? right? There hasn't really been a, a strong voice. And actually, I think that that's changed quite a bit. Like I think for all the things social media does, good and bad, there is a huge community now um, yeah. that is talking about this. And th- that is not what was happening, you know, eight years ago when I kind of made this transition mm-hmm. um, at all, which is incredible. I think a lot of the people who knew this information were in academia and not writing books, not really out there. Although there's, there's some, there's some people doing it, but I also think it's, I was at, um, the birth, APA birth psychology conference a month ago, and someone stood up and said this, they were like, you know, sleep training and, you know, the harsher parenting kind of styles, they have such great marketing. And they really do. They're so good at it. And they're like, we're not good at it. Cause we're like, really gentle and peaceful. Yeah. We like feel bad selling our stuff. (laughs) Exactly. I know. And they're like, we need to also be market, you know, savvy. Be like shameless. Yeah. No, it's true. I say that all the time. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah, completely. But it's growing. I think it's growing for sure. I mean, the other piece that came that came up when you asked that question for me was the society we live in really pushes people to, you know, adopt sleep training, adopt some of the sort of more distant separated parenting that's been around, right? That's, you know, the way that our work and societies are set up, like that's when this stuff all started. It yeah. was kind of like, oh, babies needing a lot for a while. Like how yeah, can they're we- they're pretty um... inconvenient. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like why can we change that so people can work more and not, yeah. you know, do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of the parents you and I are supporting and, you know, people in this work are supporting, they are nurturing their babies in spite of this society that we're in, which makes it even harder, right? Yeah. We get depleted easier. What would you say as far as like parents who are just not really sure, like they maybe were raised in a different way, they see it as very 
difficult to raise their babies in in this way. What would you say to them mm-hmm. to kind of like convince them like, no, this is science. This is real. Like this is the most beneficial way. Like babies do need to be nurtured. You're not coddling them. You're not spoiling them. They really do need this. Such a good question. I think, you know, this comes up for families who I meet who even are like, we love this, you know, but they're always like, but what about this doubt in my mind that's been there forever? And what about what my friends are saying? And so we all kind of need it. I think that the answer is, I kind of bring people back to like, what are your goals in parenting? Like, what, what do you wish for, for your baby? Like, what are our deepest wishes for them? Right? Because I think all of our parenting comes from that motivation, right? And people say, obviously, I want them to be grow up healthy, happy, fulfilled, with lots of great friendships and relationships and great, you know, work and just joy and, you know, love and laughter, you know, all of these things we want for our children. And the harsher parenting makes all of that harder for people to achieve. Right. We know that from the science, right? It's, it creates barriers to all of those wishes that we want, even though people are sold the opposite. They're like, oh, if you want your child to turn out with all of these wishes granted, sleep train them, keep them separated, teach them independence young, you know, all these kinds of things, it's actually doing the opposite. Right. And so to answer the question, really to say to parents, you wish for these things for your baby. And, you know, the science is really showing us that when we are nurturing, when we are interdependent with them, we provide lots of co-regulation, lots of communication and play in these early years, responsivity, that is what is really growing their brain to be the most resilient, the most able to handle life, handle stress, succeed in all the things we wish for. And it sounds counterintuitive, I guess, because we we are really, you know, really, really, you know, like I say, interdependent with them then that is what creates that success. And I don't even want to say independence, like the ability for independence later, but, you know, humans are interdependent species and we actually do want to set them up to be interdependent people when they grow up too. Absolutely. That is one of my biggest, biggest pet peeves is when people act like they want to prepare their child to just like go live on a desert somewhere. (laughs) like a desert Mm -hmm. island and just like never need anyone, never, you know, get close Mm -hmm. to anyone. Like that is not the goal. Like I want my kid to be able to make their own breakfast someday, but I don't need to prepare them to like live completely void of relationships or needing other people. Like we all need other people. Now, if you know me, you know that I love to cook and I love creating healthy meals for my family. But even more than that, I love things that are easy and convenient. And even though I love to cook dinner for my kids, sometimes for things like lunches or if I'm just going to be working at night and need something easy for myself to grab, I love Factors meals. And especially now in the spring and summertime where we've got more plans, we're busier, we're outside, we're going out and doing things more. Having Factor meals in my fridge is such a game changer because they're healthy, they're zero prep and they're so fresh and delicious factors fresh and never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes right from your microwave so no matter how busy you are you always have time to enjoy nutritious and great tasting meals and when i tell you they are actually delicious i 100 recommend these 
my mom even recently asked me, are they really good? I heard you talking about them on your podcast, but is it, are you really saying that you like them? And I said, yes, you have to order them. They are actually so, so yummy. So what are you waiting for? There are 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons you can choose from each week. So you always have new flavors to explore. You'll never get bored with the same old meals. They truly taste like restaurant quality, so you don't feel like you're depriving yourself of anything. It actually feels like you're fueling up your body with delicious food that is real and super, super nutrient dense. So you can enjoy this effortless support to your lifestyle. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage whatever goals you have and simply just eat well-balanced, delicious, easy food. Head to factormeals.com slash no one told us 50 and use code no one told us 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. So this is an amazing deal. That's code no one told us 50 at factormeals.com slash no one told us 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% of your next month while your subscription is active. And feel free to send me a message and ask me for my favorite meals because I love talking about them and I'll be happy to help you choose. Today's podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, and medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburn, rashes, and other types of skin damage. And the best part is that it's safe and non-toxic, which makes it suitable for use on all skin types and all parts of the body, even with rosacea, eczema, or acne-prone skin. With over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the littlest member of your family to the oldest, you now have one simple solution for all your family's skin health needs. I have three kids. We have injuries in our house almost daily, and so it's so nice to have active skin repair to reach for in my cabinet because I know that it's safe, natural, and non-toxic. We use it for things like burns or scrapes or cuts. My youngest daughter recently had a really bad finger injury and we were using it on her and it did not sting or burn her at all. So it was perfect. Today, as a listener of this podcast, you can get a special discount on your order of active skin repair. Visit activeskinrepair.com to learn more and to get 20% off your order, use code no one told us. That's activeskinrepair.com, code no one told us for 20% off your order. Yeah, and we should, right? Like, you know, so many people say that they're like, well, when when will they not need me? Like, when will they be this, you know, independent, you know, person? And I say, I would never wish for any human on earth to think that when they are in trouble or stressed out, that they have to go curl up into a ball alone and deal with it. Like, that's a very unhealthy way to handle stress. We want to go find someone we love and share what we're going through and get, you know, that support, like that's, we're social animals, like that's what we do. That's so true. And and I hate the messaging, you need to like push them, you know, to do things that aren't comfortable, or they're not developmentally ready for in their infancy, because of this fear that they'll never be independent, or they'll never learn, or they'll never be resilient. And I think a lot of times people take these ideas that maybe relate to children or adolescents, like, oh, they need to, you know, learn how to make mistakes. They need to learn how to fail. They need to learn all of this to be resilient. And it's like, sure, but can we not apply that logic to a six-month-old baby? Like, it's not the same thing. But I know that you kind of define 
infancy is the first three years, right? Yeah. So I think that's that's yeah. another huge misconception is that like babies hit 12 months and they should just automatically be like in toddler land and not needing as much and not as attached to their parent. And um, yeah. yeah, that's not true. Yeah. it's And I used to feel like so guilty <laughs> telling people because the cutoff is so, it's like a drastic change in expectations, right? The cutoff oh, yeah. is so young, right? Like some people are like, oh, four months. They should yep. be alone all night, sleeping yep. all night or six months or certainly 12 months, right? Is another big one. You know, we define it as zero to three years based on the brain development of the emotional structures in the brain. And when we look at our babies, their emotional needs remain that high for those entire three years. At least. Right. And <laughs> at least, right. I mean, yeah. it's really five. Like it's psychology. I have a couple it's- of very emotional four and six year olds that still need quite a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. In psychology, I believe infancy is defined up to f- age five. Okay. Yeah, um, that I don't know enough about it to speak more on it, but I see that in my child. So I get that. But yeah, from zero to three is really special in terms of the incredibly rapid brain development and our influence on genetic expression, brain connectivity, all of that kind of stuff. But yes, they're absolutely emotionally babies for definitely those first three years yeah probably up to five and also needing us past that too they're all they they, they, of course so what would you say in the first three years are the most important things for parents to keep in mind is it like lots of socialization lots of extracurricular activities like what are the most important things that parents should prioritize for healthy brain development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the most important thing that parents can focus on in those three years is the relationship with their baby. Mm. And, you know, babies really need at least one incredibly present, reliable, safe person to go to in all their emotional states, right? So in my book, I call this concept nurturing, having a nurturing presence. And it's really having this stance that all of your baby's emotions are welcome, all of their stress is welcome, and we're there for all of it, right? We love them in all their states, in all the places that they're in, and all the, you know, the things that they do, and we can really support them and love them unconditionally. And that is the most important thing for a baby, right? To have it with one person at minimum, to have it with lots of people, even better. That is so key. I think sometimes parents hear that message like, oh, all your baby needs is you. And like, all that matters is your relationship with them. And it sounds so easy. But when you're when you're deep in it, especially if you're dealing with like any kind of postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression or something like that, sometimes it's a lot easier said than done. Yep. So what would be your advice to a parent who's maybe struggling with with that relationship or with being that safe person for their child? You know, I would say, first of all, it is so normal to struggle with it because of the society we live in, right? Yeah. We Most of us haven't even touched or seen a baby until we have our own. And historically, that is not the case. Historically, we would have been 
present at many births, like starting from our own childhood. We would have been mm-hmm. caring for babies, around babies, comfortable with babies, really understanding all things baby, right? And so it is so, um, yeah, typical, normal, whatever, for us to struggle, just to sort of say, wow, I never really seen a baby. I don't know, you know, how to communicate with a baby or, you know, connect with a baby. And so, you know, a few tips I like to give, I think one is like inviting a baby whisperer into your life is so important that kind of mimics like maybe what would have been happening, you know, before and before times, I guess, whatever. And so like a postpartum doula is fantastic to have in your home, or like your grandmother, your aunt, your best friend, like someone who's just like, oh, that's the person in my life who's really great with babies. Mm-hmm. and inviting them over in those early days and just and just having them model a little bit you know that's what that's what we do as postpartum doulas so much of our work is really showing you know modeling how to communicate with the baby how to you know understand them respond to their stress help them with their sleep you know all of these things um we can learn so much from others even like this is not like a one to one example but in there was like a story in a zoo where a mother gorilla wasn't able to breastfeed her baby. And then they brought in a bunch of breastfeeding humans, uh, oh mothers God. in, and she watched them and then she learned and then she breastfed her baby. No right? way. Yeah, incredible, right? Oh my that's God, I that's love basically that. the idea. It's really important and we can get it from a lot of different places. There was one other thing I was going to say. Yeah, if people are experiencing postpartum anxiety and depression, it's also really, really common. And, you know, knowing that you, with support, you can, you will get through it is so important. And that those first three years are, it's three years of flexibility, right? To grow your baby's brain. And so catching it as early as you can is so important. And, and, you know, getting getting the help you need so important um yeah. your baby can have beautiful interactions with you even during that time and also with others right while you're mm-hmm. while you're getting help so we have yeah. talked a little bit about sleep and sleep training and you have a whole section in your book and we've talked about this on my Instagram as well but i would love to kind of just talk about like the nitty gritty of sleep and sleep training Mm-hmm. because you are so eloquent in the way that you speak about it. And it's just like not a judgment thing. It's you're trying like me, you're trying so hard to just dispel these myths and to make them just go away <laughs> forever. Yeah. Um, so yeah. can you just share a little bit about your perspective on sleep training? And when we say sleep training, let's just define it because <laughs> it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So when we say sleep training, we're not talking about like, having a bedtime routine or using wake windows or, you know, general sleep hygiene things to us, like to me, at least that's not sleep training. So what we're talking about when we say sleep training is more of like a Ferber style or a cry it out where you're kind of intentionally miscuing with your baby or you're intentionally ignoring their bids for something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's like that non-responsiveness, that separation based. What are your just like general thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, to be really honest, which I feel like my 2024 <laughs> goal, like I'm like, I'm like, I'm just gonna be really authentic this let's year. But now I know. Let's just cut <laughs> the crap, right? Like <laughs> honestly, I think it's potentially a huge 
huge source of mental health concerns in our society. Like what I believe but cannot prove is if we stopped sleep training babies, we would see a drastic improvement in mental health. It's certainly not affecting every single baby. It's not a deterministic relationship. But I do think the way that it acts in the brain is putting babies' brains at risk to develop mental health struggles and and making the people vulnerable, really vulnerable wow. to stress-related illnesses. Yes. Okay. I love that you're just yes, putting it out there because, you know, it is such a hotly debated topic. And unfortunately, there's been, you know, some studies that have kind of caught traction, even though they're pretty poorly done. <laughs> and they mm-hmm. have been kind of like a, a flagship or like a cornerstone in, in the argument for sleep training. Like doctors talk about it. Psychologists will talk about it. Everybody talks about it in this way and kind of cites these studies as like proof that it's not harmful. It's not going to harm attachment. It's not going to harm mental health. It's you know mm-hmm. completely safe, completely effective. That's of course what parents want to hear because the parents that want to sleep train or that really feel like they need to sleep train to be able to function they of course don't want to believe that they're harming their baby or that they're potentially harming mm-hmm. their child. Like no parent would want that. So what are your thoughts on like mm-hmm. the research that's out there? And do you think that we'll ever have like a clear answer on what is actually happening? Yeah, I hope we do. I hope we do. Um, I mean, I think the studies that are out there do not show that it is safe. There still is no evidence that it is safe or even that it's effective right, in changing sleep. You know, I really think parents need to know the truth in order to make a decision. And again, people can make whatever decision that they want, but I think that they do really deserve to have true informed choice yeah. in making that decision, right? Yeah. Um, and in some families, knowing that you know, sleep training does, inter- you know, potentially, we'll still say potentially, because we don't have that smoking gun study. We just have lots of studies on what early life stress does to the infant brain. And we have some studies showing that sleep training is stressful, right? And separation is stressful, you know, and, you know, loads more that that do suggest this, but we, do, we don't have that definitive Right. Kind of kind of thing. But for families to know that there is a lot of evidence, you know, myself, uh, Gabor Mate, I was trying to make a list of the people who've come out to to say this. I know Sarah Aquel Smith has talked about it. There's an Australian Infant Mental Health Foundation that has made a statement against sleep yeah. training. Yeah. For parents to just know that there that a lot of experts who who really understand the literature, you know, are concerned about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to know that it doesn't significantly like increase the amount of time a baby is sleeping or their quality of sleep or any of these things that sleep training is promising. Um, having that information and knowing, okay, so it possibly introduces vulnerability into the into development and it's not going to actually change the way babies sleep. It's what it will do is potentially, because I think it's only depending on the study, 20-ish percent of babies do extinguish their signaling from sleep training. If it works in that way, the baby will stop signaling for a time mm-hmm. and the parents will get probably better sleep. 
right? That That is truly what it's doing. Yep. Parents can make them a true informed decision there. They might say, hey, listen, I have a mental illness where if I don't actually get 10 hours of sleep straight, you know, I'm vulnerable to psychosis. This is a better choice for my family, right? Mm-hmm. So that maybe that's like a true informed choice, right? Or, you know, there's a lot of other reasons why it might be a true informed choice. You know, the other thing they might say is, oh, you know what? I'm really vulnerable, but my mom can move in and she's willing to do the baby nighttime care or my partner's willing to do it. Or maybe we'll set up some other kind of arrangement Mm -hmm. because now we have this information and we want to use, you know, a true informed approach. And other people might say, oh, well, I want to try another way or I'll try another way for a time or, you know, there's so many different ways to respond. Yeah, all to say that, yeah, that's what I wish for families is to have that informed choice. Yeah, to just know. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And I think temperament has a lot to do with it too, because you do... One thing I also wanted to ask you though, because you do hear about those babies that you know might whine or fuss, they're not even really escalating for the first you know mm-hmm. couple of nights. And then they're sleep trained or, you know, they start to sleep through the night and you hear those success stories so much that I think everybody assumes that that's going to be their baby too. Not realizing that that's probably a super easygoing baby and that a baby with a more sensitive temperament is probably not going to react that way. What do you think about that and about like what is actually happening? Like when the baby cries, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes the first night, usually it's longer. And then, you know, it decreases mm-hmm. over the first few nights. And then after a week, maybe two weeks, they're quote unquote sleep trained. What is actually happening? Mm-hmm. There? Because sleep trainers will say, oh, well, they've just learned that they can put themselves to sleep without help, or they've learned how to self-soothe. Is that actually what's yeah, happening absolutely. Or, or not? Or do we really not know? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, we, we the, the studies that have videoed babies, they see the babies are still waking up but not signaling, right? So um, they're not sleeping more, right? We already t- we right. already mentioned that. Right. You know, are they self-soothing? That's it. That's the other question. Um, you're right. It might have something to do with temperament. 
for sure. But well, yeah, when we see, like what is happening in the process of sleep training is the question, right? And I think what sleep training is doing is using a survival mechanism in babies. You know, essentially what it's doing is pairing this very specific environment because babies have to be in the same environment every time, right, for it to work as well. Mm-hmm. So they're prepar- they're pairing that environment with the information that when you cry, no one is coming, basically, right? And so, you know, the first night, babies will have very big stress responses, you know, at first, sort of a fight or flight response, you know, babies have some huge responses there, right? Vomiting, diarrhea, like all kinds of like giant stress responses. And what the nervous system will do after a fight or flight response is go into into sort of dissociate, freeze, shut down sleep response, Hmm. basically, right? So on that first night, that's, that's essentially what's happening, right? They're first going to fight or flight, and then going into freeze um, to, to then fall asleep. And then, you know, the second night that will happen uh, again, but um, it's shorter possibly because it also survival wise doesn't make sense to be screaming and calling attention to possible predators, right? If, if no one's going to be coming. And then after that, it's, it's really then the, you know, it often doesn't take three nights. It often is like two weeks or a month or like even, yeah. you know, right. Some of the, studies, over the newer over studies showing it was like 40 nights or yeah. Yeah. I've been in homes where babies are crying to sleep every single nap and every single night for that whole three years. Yeah. Right? And parents so, just get used to it. Um, it like becomes their sleep association that like they just cry. I used to babysit for a family where, and I didn't know anything. I was young, but I would put the baby to bed in her crib and they'd be like, yeah, so she usually cries for like 20 minutes and then she'll fall asleep. And this was like every single night she was four years old since she was a baby. Mm-hmm. They had just kind of like yeah. trained themselves to just expect that and, and know that that was going to happen every single night. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I get like a knot in my stomach talking about it. It's really tough. And, you know, when I say like, it's the survival mechanism, you know, you imagine like, a baby, you know, and when we're hunter gatherer society, an emergency happens, a baby's like stashed under a bush or something to try to keep them safe. And then they might cry for help, but then no one comes. And then it makes sense for them to go down and shut down and sleep. Right. right? That's, right. that's a survival mechanism. Right. And it's, it's very similar um, to what's happening yeah. here. Cause our babies don't know that they're in a safe home. They don't know that we have locks on our doors or an alarm system or you know anything like that they're just like i'm alone and no one's coming and this is terrifying yeah right yeah so do you think that then babies can learn to like manipulate parents where they're you know crying out they realize the parent's going to come get them and you know the parent's going to bring them into bed or something and then they're you know getting what they want is that manipulation on the baby's part or are babies not capable of doing that? Yeah. Babies are really aren't capable of manipulating. They're capable of communicating their needs. Right. And I think if they're asking, I need closeness, like a need for closeness and you know, that relationship is a very fundamental need for babies. Right. So like their survival needs are, you know, 
all equal, water, nutrition, um, temperature control, and relationship. It's all, they're all even. They need a relationship just as much as they need water to survive. And so them communicating that they need that um, is, is a need, right? It's not manipulative. They will get very clever about getting that need met because it is a really, you know, a really important need for them, right? right. To survive, right? So they can, they can do all kinds of, you know, both like hilarious and also, you know, really desperate things, right? Yeah. To, to get that close. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this idea that like babies are just manipulating you or something like that, it's like, no, that implies that they're doing this with like some kind of malice where they're, you know, they're trying to do something wrong or get away with something. It's like, no, they, this is what they need and they're trying to get their needs met. Like, how could you blame them for that? Right. Yeah. It's like based on that premise that there's a problem, like there's a, like them needing to be close is a problem. It's like deviant behavior. It's like shameful right. if you let them be close. Right. Um, and they're they're this like evil little being that's going to like do whatever they need, you know, manipulate and whatever just to get close to you. It's and like so you can't crazy. let that happen. It's, it's so wild. It's so wild. It really wild. is. It, but it's like, again, it's why your book title is so appropriate. It's so genius because it's like, yeah, like this actually is kind of a revolutionary way to think these days, which is wild. Well, what every time I mention the sleep training and like how I see the reality of it and yeah. the science kind of suggests what the reality is, I also want to always say to parents out there who have done some sleep training or, oh, yeah, you know, here. have an older child who had been sleep trained um, to know that like, Yes, those like experiences between zero to three are significant, but we can provide repair too. And so if you have a young baby, like who is still under three, you can make, you can make a lot of effort to make sleep feel safe again and start responding again. It's never too late to do that. And any amount that you do under three, like will be reparative and, you know, work in those emotional systems. And for older kids, right, like a lot of babies and people who are sleep trained will then have a lot higher sleep needs when they're older, like more insomnia, more need to be close, you know, more waking, all that stuff. And, you know, we can do that repair then as well, too, right? And for people to also just to say, it's always so important to say, like, it is the status quo to sleep train a baby in the society. Like, it's like assumed that you're going to do it and so like please like don't feel bad don't like beat yourself up about it if you're feeling bad about it now and have this as new information it's it's what is expected yeah i mean i i talk about it all the time on my page like i did it with my first and you and i have talked about this too and i regret it so much but i also just hold so much compassion for that version of myself who was really just yeah. trying to do the best thing and I was unfortunately sold this program that w- told me that this was like good for my baby and that they needed it and that it was like a gift to them. So like, of course, how would I not want to do that? And like now I see how backwards it is. But yeah. yeah, we do have so much compassion for people who decide that that is something that they need to do or that, you know, they just kind of fell into because everybody was doing it or their pediatrician told them to do it. And 
now they regret it or even if they don't regret it, you know, it's like you said, it's never too late for mm-hmm. repair and to just be kind to yourself for what you know or don't yes. know at any point in time because we're all just doing our best. Okay. So to wrap up, Dr. Greer, what is something no one told you before you became a parent that you wish you had known? Good question. Oh my gosh. I think what I was not told, I think maybe not seriously enough, was that I needed to make so much of an effort to be taking care of myself Mm. in the early days with a baby and really to have made that a priority. And that is something I wish for all new parents now. Right. And if that means like hiring someone to come over, you know, figuring it out with a friend or family member, it is so vital and important to any sort of rejuvenating, joyful, you know, regulating practice for yourself. Mm -hmm. Cause I did fully burn out and did not, did not take care of myself in those early days. Yeah. Yeah. I think so many of us fall into that and you're told like, oh, self-care is so important. And you're just like, okay, whatever. Like, I don't actually have time for that. But yeah, any little thing that you can do or that you can hire somebody to do or tell somebody to do for you is going to make a huge difference. So I love that advice. So again, the book is called The Nurture Revolution. It's absolutely fabulous. I recommend it to pretty much any new parent. It's so good. Where can people find your book and your other resources and um, find you online? Yeah, thank you so much. My book is available everywhere. Uh, books are sold all the online places and your local bookstore is my first my first choice. Ask them to, to order it in if they don't have it. And you can find me on Instagram at Nurture Neuroscience Parenting. And my website is nurture-neuroscience.com. And all my offerings are, are there. Okay, perfect. I'll put all of that in the show notes for everybody. Greer, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Rachel. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. 
and let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking